we're in the second week of a six-week series. We're looking at the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, um, but we're doing it through the eyes of Luke, the gospel writer Luke. And uh, Luke writes in a different way. Luke, Luke writes to a different perspective, and, and it has different emphasis than the other gospel writers. And some people look at that as a problem and say, okay, there's contradictions. I don't see that as a problem. For me, that's more credible because you see different people seeing a story and looking at different things. And if you and I were to see something, we would see it differently. And so I, I appreciate the fact that the gospel writers see things a little differently and tweak things a little differently. And so we're going to spend our time for the next few weeks just looking at Luke and seeing how he reveals to us who God is and then how we apply that uh, to our life. If, if you look and read Luke, and I encourage you to read Luke over this Lenten season, um, if you read Luke, you will see that he really reveals to us the heart of Jesus, uh, and he shows us Jesus who has a certain affinity for um, the least and the lost. Uh, if you look at who Jesus interacts with, Jesus is very intentional to interact and eat dinner with with sinners, people who are broken. Jesus is very intentional to uh, put himself into situations where he encounters tax collectors and people that the society say are, are, are not important or, um, or people that we should reject or, or, or not appreciate. Uh, these are the people that Jesus hangs out with. And so the next few weeks, we're going to see how Luke portrays this in the hopes that we begin to, to live that out. Because that's really our goal. Our goal is to become more Christ-like. Uh, we like to think that our goal is salvation because that makes us feel really good. Uh, but I want us to, to, to understand a broader understanding of salvation because what you do in this life matters. What you do in this life makes a difference. And so I want us to see all of this through the eyes of Luke. Um, every story about Jesus teaches us something about God, uh, how we relate to God and how we should relate to one another. Um, what we saw last week, if you were here, and if you weren't, I encourage you to go online and listen to that message. Um, but what we saw was the birth narrative, and we saw that Luke introduces us to a number of characters, um, unexpected characters, uh, when you really think about it. He, he introduces us to Mary, who is this unwed unmarried mother who lives in a town that is insignificant, destined to just be ordinary or, or um, uh, a nobody in society's view. She's destined to be a day laborer that is just going to move between Nazareth and a town of luxury. Um, she would be probably the last person that we would choose to be given the task of being the mother of the Son of God, and yet God chose her. And then Mary and Joseph have to travel this great distance um, to be able to get to Bethlehem. And that makes sense to us when we hear the story. That makes sense to us if they were going to get to the right doctor. Uh, if they were going to get to the specialist that they needed, it makes sense that they would travel great distances. Or if they were going to travel to get to the birthing center that they needed to be at, that would make sense to us. Um, but they were traveling to end up in a cave where animals were and in all the smells that go with that and the dark, damp space. It would be the last place that we would choose, and yet that's where God chose to have the Son of God born. And then when you think about who came into that environment, God chose to bring and people in honor were shepherds. Shepherds were the, the least of the people at that day and time. And so shepherds were shady and untrustworthy. And so yet it would probably be the last people that we would think would be the first people to hold Jesus. And yet that's who God chose 
Over and over again, we can see examples of God bringing in the unexpected people and places into the story. Well, if you keep reading the gospel, um, you will find that he continues to introduce us to unusual or or, or, uh, unexpected characters. Um, You go read the gospel, you will meet Simeon. Simeon is an older gentleman who most of his life uh, is ahead of, is behind him. All the good days are, are most behind him. And he has spent his life waiting on the promises of God to come true. And so he's walked around the temple yard. He's walked around the synagogue walking and waiting and walking and waiting, walking and waiting. And the story tells us that one day he's walking through and Mary and Joseph come in with Jesus and they, he sees Jesus. And he knows that this is the Christ child and he begins to sing and praise out to praise God. He would probably not be the person that we would choose to be in the story, and yet that's who's there. And then after Simeon, we meet Anna. Anna is also an elderly woman who has spent most of her life grieving over the death of her husband in despair and very little hope. And yet when she sees the Christ child, it's, she begins to have hope, and she sees life. And it says that she begins to sing and give praises to God and to prophesy. What you see in the story of, God, of, of Luke is that Luke surrounds Jesus with all of these unexpected people and unexpected places. It takes four chapters, in my opinion, it takes four chapters for anything to happen that you would expect to happen. In the fourth chapter, Jesus is baptized. Jesus has begun ministry. Jesus has grown physically. He's grown spiritually. Jesus goes into the wilderness, is tempted he comes out of the wilderness. And so we think about Luke's version and all these unexpected people. You think, okay, does he go to an unexpected place? Does he go and meet unexpected people? No. He goes to his hometown. He goes back where he grew up. He goes to the place where the people know him the best. And to me, that makes sense. You have this great experience. You have this, this life-changing thing happen to you, and you go where you're comfortable. You go where you, you, you know people. Because they're the people who love you, and they, they know all about you. I was talking this week. If, if, you, if you're not aware, we had several members pass away this, this, the last couple of days. And I was talking to the fam- family of Miriam Mays uh, yesterday, uh, 96 years old. And her daughter told me that uh, about a month ago, she was living in Florida for the last seven years. And, and she said that about a month ago that Miriam told her that she just wanted to go to Stockbridge one more time. And she said, why would you want to go back to Stockbridge? And she said, I just want to go to the church one more time. And she said she teared up because she knew that probably the next time she would be back in Stockbridge, she would have passed away. But that's the, the longing that it made sense to me when you read the story. That's where Jesus would want to be. These are the people that would accept him. I can remember my first, when I went into ministry, uh, the, the first place that I preached was my home church. Uh, and people were so gracious uh, to me. It was probably a terrible sermon, but they were, they were gracious to me because they're the people who know you the best. My son, his first sermon, he was 12 or 13 uh, at the time, and he preached a sermon that probably if he looks back on it when he's 35 or 45, he's going to be appalled that he preached. But everybody was so gracious to him. 
Uh, I think about those stories, and I think that for those of you who have been in the church, uh, Vega uh, grew up uh, in, in Stockbridge, and he was a young man who's now at Reinhardt College, and he preached for y'all. Many of you probably were here, and you heard him preach, and he came through the Stockbridge football team, and, uh, and so we have a connection to him, and he preached to you, and you were probably gracious. All of that makes sense to me, and I think that's the what the story kind of begins to unfold. You see, Jesus, after this experience, he goes to his hometown, And he does what Jesus does. He began to preach. He went to his church, and he'd been nurtured in this place. He began to preach and tell them what God had called him to do and what God was doing in the world. But that's where the expectation ends because their response was not your typical home church response. Listen to what Luke tells us in uh, Luke 4 was their response. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4. Somebody told me the 830 service, I did not mention bring your Bibles, and they had brought their Bibles. So this is my bring your Bible point. If you've got your Bibles, open it up. If not, bring your Bible next week. Luke chapter 4, verse 28 through 30, we read the response of the church. It says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This was their response. Surrounded by his family and friends, proclaiming what God was doing in his life, what God was going to do through them, through him, for them. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. They couldn't help but stop and go, wait a minute. That's just a a kid that grew up here. That's a kid who was on the football team. He's just a, a nobody, just like we are. That's all they could see. What's he doing thinking that he is somebody more important than us? They're filled with rage, the scripture says. But what it causes me to wonder is it causes me to wonder, what's going on in the people of Nazareth? Why can they not see in Jesus what Anna and Simeon see? Why can they not see what Mary and Joseph can see? And it appears to me that there's a problem with their vision And what I've come to understand in discipleship, us growing in our Christ-likeness, growing in our faith, that it's inherent of how we look at things that help determine how we respond to things. And so their story makes me stop and think, how am I looking at things? And I think it would challenge you to stop and go, how do you see things? There's a church, an Episcopal church, located in uh, Davidson, North Carolina. Davidson College. Uh, Davidson, North Carolina is a uh, very upscale lake community. And there's an Episcopal church up there that one Easter, they, they, they put out a sculpture in front of their church um, as a statement. I want you to see the sculpture that they put, if you'll see here. This was a sculpture that they put outside in the front of their church. Now, I want to leave this up for just a moment because I want you to see. This was a sculpture of a homeless Jesus. Now, you, it's hard for you to probably be able to tell how we know that this is Jesus. Is right here you can see there are holes in his feet where the nails would have been attached to the cross. And they put this sculpture out there 
one Lenten season to see what the response was. And the response was immediate. And so I want you to just kind of think about how you would respond as you look at this sculpture. Immediately when they put it out, someone called the cops to try to get somebody off of the park bench. Somebody else wrote into the church and told them that they were not representing Jesus very well. Somebody else wrote a letter to the editor of the paper and said that this was bringing down the view of the upscale lake community. That they needed to remove this sculpture because it was bringing up a topic that we didn't need to talk about. How would you respond? Now, there were some who responded. Some saw the compassion of Jesus as they looked at the sculpture. And they, the, the church wrote about that there were some people who came and sat. And they sat down on the park bench. And that they actually believed it was somebody. And so they sat down to try to see how they would help them. Somebody else wrote a letter as a counter to the paper, to the editorial uh, board. And said that this represented... Um, the words of Matthew where Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Some people looked at this sculpture and they were repulsed. Some people looked at the sculpture and saw all the grace of Jesus in this. How would you see it? How do you see it? Make it even more practical as what if you came back next Sunday and that sculpture was sitting out on our grass lawn? Would you email me and complain? See, how we see things affect the way that we respond. How we see things dictates a lot of how we um, move forward in our faith. See, the people of Nazareth, I think, they could not get past that Jesus was just a nobody. They could not get past any of that. They saw everything as limiting in what Jesus was able to do. How do you, how do you view Jesus? See, I think that we're called to live our, our lives through the eyes of truth. I think that we're called to, to look for the potential and the possibilities of Jesus. That's how we're called to live. Something was preventing the people of Nazareth from doing that. And it should push all of us to stop and go, how do we see Jesus? But Jesus pushed through the resistance, it says. And then we begin to move from chapter 4 to chapter 5. And we get a, uh, a contrast. A lot of times you'll read in the Gospels, you'll read stories. And you're meant to see them paired together. So immediately following this story in Nazareth, we get Jesus in a different town. And a different experience. He's walking through the town and he encounters a person with leprosy. Now, lepers were certainly outcast. Lepers were people who, who, who were certainly the, the least of the society. They, they could ruin a whole community by making it unclean. And so they could bring everything. In. Lepers were people that the, the world feared. They, they, they were peop, the people that the world rejected. And so you, if you were concerned or thought, thought that you had leprosy, you would have to go before the priest, and the priest would examine you. And then once the priest examined you, you would have to wait in isolation for seven days, and then the priest would eventually declare you as clean or convicted. 
And if you were convicted, then you had to follow the rules of the Old Testament with regards to what happened to lepers. So let's look at what happens in Leviticus 13 or the rules for lepers. It says, anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes. Let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their faces and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone and they must live outside the camp. They're literally kicked out of the city. They have to go outside of the city walls and they have to demean themselves by yelling out to everybody they meet that they're unclean before you've ever even had a chance to meet them. And so Jesus is walking through this city, and he encounters a leper. And we get this story immediately following the story about Nazareth. So look at what it says in Luke 5, 12 through 13. It says, while Jesus is in one of the towns, a man comes along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy, leprosy left him. Now, there's so much in this story that we could, we could break down. But what I want you to see is he, is he is shackled to this disease. But yet this man with leprosy sees something that the people of Nazareth cannot see. And he sees the power of Jesus. This man sees something in Jesus that causes him to, to, to walk away or walk through the literal barrier of the city wall and to come into the city. There's something that he, this man sees in Jesus that causes him to go up to Jesus and to, to, to fall in front of him and say, if you're willing, make me clean. Notice he does not pray, can you make me clean? He says, will you? He knows, he understands the power that Jesus has. And then Jesus reaches out, touches him, and says, I am willing, be clean. And immediately this guy who is the outcast, this guy who is the, the, the rejected, this guy is somebody again. And my argument is that some of us sit here this morning and we're holding on to something because we have allowed the world to put a barrier up. We have put our own barriers up. We have put walls up around us, around our pain, around our hurt. What do you need to leave behind? Because this man left everything behind so that he could approach Jesus because he knew Jesus had the power to heal. He knew Jesus had the power to restore how do you see things? We see from this moment forward that, this, that we see, see countless examples of Jesus healing. But I want us to pause on this healing story because there's something that's extremely important here that we could overlook. There's something misunderstood about leprosy. Leprosy is a social disease. It's, as I said earlier, it can, it can break down a whole community. But when you read about leprosy in the New Testament, you can read into it a general symbol for sin. There's a spiritual reality that exists here. And you can understand that when you read the words that Jesus said, because Jesus uses a particular word when he is talking about healing this man. Look at this word. It's a Greek word, katharizo. And while it means healing, most often in the New Testament, this word is used for forgiveness. 
So it's used for healing here, but most everywhere else you read about it, it's used as forgiveness. It's a spiritual word that means freedom from all the guilt and all the shame that this man is mired to. Because remember, he is shackled to this disease. And so this man knows and sees in Jesus the power to be able to set, be set free. And Jesus sets him free. He reaches out and says, I am willing, be clean. And this man stands up and is completely transformed. What you see in this story is you literally see the gospel in miniature. All of the shame, all of the guilt, all of the doubt, everything that separates us from the perfect love of Jesus Christ is put onto Jesus. And the scripture says in Philippians, look at how Paul describes it in Philippians 2. It says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Gospel of Luke portrays a picture of a Jesus who gives himself to us to get into our messiness so that we can be set free from that. I want to ask you this morning when you pray, we've been talking about prayer for four weeks. When you pray, do you pray to a God who you know can heal? Do you pray to a God who you know can save? Do you pray to a God who you know can redeem? Do you pray to a God who you know can have power? we got to see this. And these two stories are placed in the gospel to show it to us. We can be people like Nazareth who only see Jesus as a nobody. Or we can, be, we can be the leper who sees the power of Jesus Christ. I look around this morning and I know that some of you are in situations that are difficult. You're sick. Your family's sick. You're carrying a lot of weight. How do you see things? My prayer is that we can begin to pray in all of the power of Jesus Christ. I truly pray we can be the leper. Because then we're transformed. Amen? Let's pray. Most gracious God, we are so thankful that you are a God who reaches into each one of our lives and says, I am willing. I pray, God, for any single person in this room this morning who's holding on to anything that has allowed any barrier to come between them and you. And I pray, Lord, that they can let go of that this morning. That they can truly let go and come to you. And I also pray, God, that we can, we can come to you with the, certain, the certainty that you are a God of power and might and healing and forgiveness 
may we be transformed this morning. I invite you this morning as we sing our last song. That if you need to pray the altar, feel free to come forward. Pray in your seats. But folks, we've got to get this message that comes in Luke. And I don't want any of us to leave as people in Nazareth. But I want us to leave as the leper who is able to see all of the power and possibility that is Jesus Christ. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.